Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today, I am joined on the Focus on Why podcast by Joe Lockwood. Joe, very warm welcome. Morning, Amy. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this for weeks and I can't wait to have a conversation with you. Well, it's it's only fair. I came onto your podcast and had a wonderful time and now we can have that return favour or I can have that return favour of having the delight of you being in the hot seat this time. Thank you. Yes, it's a different position when you're... Yeah, host versus guest, it's a different experience. So I'm looking forward to this. Well, let's just see each other as two hosts or two guests, whichever way. But, you know, we're both on an equal footing here today, so it's all good. So why don't you start off, Joe, by sharing what it is you're doing right now? Well, thank you, Amy. I, I kind of describe myself as an inclusion of belonging specialist. So what does that mean? So my focus is around um, creating environments where people can thrive where marginalised people have representation, where people feel like they have a voice. And I do that by, I work with uh, organisations mainly, charities, public sector bodies. Uh, I tend to work with their people people. And what do I mean by that? Sort of talent acquisition, HR, DNI teams. And my mission really is to take it out of just being an HR function, but thinking about it as a cross-business function where the whole organisation is focusing on inclusion and belonging whether that's on product design, making sure that someone designs their products, thinking about all people or as many people as possible, customer service, service delivery, um, whatever that may be within your business is making sure it's kind of thinking about people who may not always be thought about, whether that's disability, whether that's uh, gender, whether that's uh, race or faith, or whether that's people who don't have access to digital technology being left behind, people of different age groups. So, even left-handed people, I'd encourage even, even people to think about left-handed people and their design. Oh, it's so interesting you mentioned that because my husband is, is left-handed and, you know, all the simple things like cutting with scissors. And, and, and I know that schools are much better at addressing that than they used to be when he was growing up. But just simple tasks like that makes so much difference. Oh, it does. And uh, it's it, it's just random, silly things. And I think I've also got kind of left-right dyslexia or whatever, if that's the thing, where I find it really difficult when I go to pick something up. I, if someone says, un unscrew it, I think, oh, which way do I have to unscrew that? And it's, and I'm undoing a nail, or a, sorry, a screw with a screwdriver. I'm, I'm always thinking about, am I turning it right way? I'm turning it the wrong way. Is it left? Is it right? Clockwise, counterclockwise. So I always get this sort of left-right, clockwise, counterclockwise, really confused in my brain. And I have to bring it into my consciousness and play it out and think about a clock. Yes, that goes that way. And left, yes, that's this. I write my, my right and my left hand, and left is that way and right. So I have to play that game each time. It's not automatic for me. So it's, uh, yeah. And it's interesting, actually, that whole left-right confusion, because, you know, you're not the only person. I've had this conversation with other people before, that that, that whole left-right, your instinct to sort of say left. No, 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 the other left, the other right. You know, yeah. it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> So I mean, my wife is... gets used to me now when I when I describe and I say it's on the left, and she went, "Do you mean the left?" I went, "No, I mean the right." <laughs> or she'll say, "Turn left." I go, 
Uh, I say, don't just tell me when you can't. Well, you tell me, just give me a point. Which, which, which way do you mean? And I'm not sure if that's just being left-handed or, or whether that's just me, me, me being me. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely been the source of many arguments in the car for journeys and directions. Yeah, well, I guess we're kind of used to it. And the quirky thing in our in our relationship is I, I was taught to eat with a knife and fork, so fork in the left, knife in the right. But my wife was taught to eat with a fork in, in the right and a, and a knife in the left. So she eats left-handed, I eat right-handed, but I use a spoon in my left hand. So I'm kind of kind of ambidextrous or... I don't really care which hand I use for things, but I kind of have a default preference for certain things. Like scissors, depending on which is easiest, sometimes I use a pair of scissors in my left hand, sometimes I use them with my right hand. Uh, so often I pick the hand that's best for the task at the moment. That's really interesting. And, uh, and I know that my husband has a differentiation for hand use, depending on whether it's a macro task or a micro task. So hmm. anything he has for left-handed is for all the micro. And then for the bigger tasks, the macro tasks, it's, it's right-handed. So he plays all his sport right-handed, uh, but anything smaller is all left-driven. You see, I, I, when I used to play squash, I used to serve left hand so I hit with the left hand and then instead of doing a backhand I swapped my right hand and then play play the shot instead of using a backhand I already use a backhand I already use a right so I had I had four shots so but I swapped the record over so and the same yeah. with tennis so, yeah brilliant so <laughs> the the mission behind all of this is not about discerning the difference between your left and right hand and it, it's it goes sort of deeper or or I guess that is an element of you know it is part of it yeah, it's certainly when you're thinking about people, it's understanding individuality, and I think also as a person, you have to understand your own individuality, because how can you possibly have empathy or compassion for somebody else unless you understand yourself? So I always say, start with self, understand what it's like to be white, understand what it's like to be privileged, whatever that may be. I understand what it's like to have English as a first language when many people don't. So, yeah, it's around understanding yourself first, not necessarily understanding what it's like to be different, understand what it's like to be you. And then you can, uh, then you can have a far better place to reach out with compassion and, and empathy once you kind of get that, those skills and those tools in your head and then learn some emotional and, and cultural intelligence, you know, understand how to talk to different people, understand different people, uh, and just be curious in people. And when did you sort of understand that this was the starting point? At what point in your life was it about understanding who you truly are? In the last two or three years, it, it really has been a, a self, self-actualization, an epiphany. I, I don't know what point it happened, but I suddenly started realizing that this became my internal mantra, my internal voice to create this understanding, whether it was because my background, I, I ran an IT company for many years, so I, I was always worried about on or off, yes and no, very binary in terms of a, a computing, and either works or it doesn't work. Often there's no, there's not a lot of shade to grey. So, so that was kind of my background. But in the last four years since I did a complete U-turn on my career and everything else, I, I've become more focused on inclusion, belonging, and on that journey, it's where I, I discovered this narrative, this language, this thought process. And it, I don't think there's a, a day I woke up with, ah, now I get it. 
I think it's just an evolution of self, an evolution of understanding of who I am, who other people are. Maybe it's just hearing other people's lived experiences, hearing other people's stories, hearing about other people, and then understanding about my privilege in relation to theirs, um, my able-bodied privilege. I don't have to, I don't think twice about going for a drive, going shopping, getting on a bus, getting on a train. And I suddenly realized when traveling with a friend of mine who is uh, deaf and she has a hearing dog and a cochlear implant, how difficult it is to navigate London, the underground. You can't take a dog on the escalator. You have to find the lift or the stairs. Um, you can't just get on the train because you need a special seating for the dog and everything. And she has to find a guard to let her on the train and then ask people to move so she can sit at the seating and then want tuts. So I just thought that's a big strain. to almost feel like a burden on the train because everybody around you has to then shuffle to accommodate you rather than being kind of the default of creating space for people with disabilities. And I've got another great friend who is a wheelchair user and just being with her on a bus in London with the ramps on and off and people blocking away, it just made me really appreciate me. So I think with that, as some of my black friends, as some of my gay friends, some of my trans friends, some of my female friends, just hearing stories, it made me, it made me check my privilege. And, I, and I, I'm a great believer in storytelling and also listening to stories. Yeah, listening is very powerful. And I, so yeah, when, when did this epiphany happen? As I say, it's evolved through listening to people's stories and encompassing that narrative into my own to understand my own privilege. And it's interesting you talk about the sort of the privilege and that it's evolved. And, but there's, there's always been there. How, why have they come to the, to the forefront in the last few years? I think every, every generation, every um, cohort, every group has a story. I think maybe the internet has created greater amplification of stories. We've lived in this, we now live in this world where the media want to polarize opinions. They want right and wrong. They want black versus white. They want the, the, the Gulliver's travel. Should you cut the egg from the pointy side or the round side? They want to create this division in society because division stokes debate. Debate stokes engagement, stokes clicks, stokes advertising revenue. There's no news in person gets up in the morning, has a great day, goes to bed happy. There's no news. News comes from a personal tragedy or something impactful that motivates people. So I think we've now become publicists ourselves on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, whatever it may be. And again, we get the best engagement when we challenge. So there's a rise now of the self-publisher, the um, the people on it, the influencer, if you like, all trying to sell their personality. So I think we are seeing a lot more stories. We are seeing a lot more people taking responsibility through a narrative, but that also generates a lot more negative debate. You know, if you think about Black Lives Matter, and on the face of it, it should be recourse. Black people suffering more discrimination, more stop and searches, more deaths in custody by the police, less access to housing, more trouble getting mortgages and rental accommodation, all the things that black people have as a daily impact on their lives. 
most of us are going to get home and go, well, of course, that's not right. We need to build equity. We need to build a fairer society. We need to reduce the marginalization. But somehow that whole Black Lives Matter generated a backlash about for white privilege going, well, hang on a minute. I'm white. I, I don't have it easy either. Yeah, but you don't have it. Your problem is not the color of your skin. You're not being marginalized because of the color of your skin. You're being, you have a problem for, for another reason. So just looking at the neg negativity and around, you know, the look at the Cadbury's cream egg advert that's going out at the moment where two men are holding a Cadbury's cream egg between their mouths, kissing with it. And the backlash, the 50,000 people who complained about this advert of two men kissing with an egg between their lips. And you think, why does it matter? Does it, it doesn't cost you anything to go, it's not me, it's fine, move on. But people want to have an opinion. We've, we've, we've given people a voice on social media. We've asked them to comment and chat. So they go, I don't like that. I think it's offensive. Well, great, fine. And then that whole debate starts. We end up with these polarized arguments. We end up with this, let's say, two camps. So we're now seeing that with, with Brexit, where we polarize people. We're now seeing that with uh, the, the vax, not vax, lockdown, don't lockdown, uh, whether the COVID's real, COVID's not real. We see it with in, in the in the US. We saw the, the American gen, uh, election for the new president. We've seen that in the UK around uh, blue versus red. We see all this time is feudalistic. It's it's it, we're battling each other, and it's very hard to take the centre ground because each side wants to pull you. You know, if you're on the fence, you want to hear the debate. You have to make you're almost like forced to make a decision. Because you're in your echo chamber. Your echo chamber says, decide. You're in my tribe, therefore you have to think like me, which is a, a great power of your tribe, your cohort, because it creates that safety, that inclusion, that belonging. But sometimes you find yourself being socialized into beliefs that are more polarized than you may have had your tribe been in the middle ground where you, you, you get used to open debate and rhetoric. And that's maybe the trouble we're having now is we either have to agree with somebody or disagree with somebody, we can't go, hmm, not sure about that. Let me find out more. And it's a really hard place to be, to be curious. And that's where we want to push people back into this curious zone. We can be comfortable having uncomfortable conversations, consciously curious, inquisitive about people to try and learn and understand. And maybe it isn't a polarized outcome we're after. We're after a blended outcome. It's really interesting that you're talking about the fact that you're an inclusion and belonging specialist and you're focused on that as the outcome. And yet people want to have a, a, a sort of dis, a real understanding that what they believe is absolute. And so there's a, there's a difficulty there. It's, it's sort of a, the paradox is that you can't achieve both. Oh, and I think the other uh, false stick to me is that you don't have to include everybody. Inclusion doesn't mean to say everybody is included. Inclusion means to say that you, you enact your decisions through fairness, respect, equality, dignity, and autonomy. You make sure that people have equity in that decision. You're not using biases or unfair judgments to make your, your conclusion. It may well be that someone is more suitable. It may be that someone is not suitable for this role. It may be someone is not suitable or their opinions aren't valid. We don't have to create space for every opinion. What we have to do is, is evaluate it and say, well, that's actually, that's not fair. We don't want to promote unfairness. Um, and then we get into the whole question, who decides what's fair and what's not fair? But we have social constructs. We have the law. We have the, the mood of the country. Uh, in some respect, we have to kind of evolve that 
not um, have a revolution, if you like. And we have to create space for each other. And I don't, I don't mean that's a tolerance. I don't like, I don't like the word tolerance. I don't think we should tolerate each other. But what we should do is respect each other's views based on a perspective. And I talk about this all the time, where I like the equation E plus R equals O, where E is an event, something happens, we react with the R, and then that leads to an outcome, the O. But of course, the plus is our perspective, how we see the world, our lived experience, uh, our socialization, our beliefs, everything about us, where we're standing at that particular moment, how we're going to see that event and react. So there's often more than, well, two or more truths. There's my truth, somebody else's truth, and there's shared truth. And the more people involved, the more shared, the bigger the tr shared truth is, and the more opinions you're going to get. So it's trying to find the shared truth, the shared opinion based on all perspectives, and and not just bow to the loudest voice, the strongest, yeah, the strongest character, or the people we like most. We, I agree with you, therefore I'm going to listen to you. So the biases we, we bring into play. So it's creating a space to amplify people who may not be heard, people who may be marginalised, people who want to talk about disability, people who want to talk about racism, sexism, and just creating space to amplify those voices. That's really interesting. I'm picking up on, on several different strands here. One is of the sort of injustice versus justice scenario. And then also that confirmation bias that we, we sort of seek in, in sort of trying to play out what we see or what we perceive as being right and so we we look for that in everything that goes on mm. around us and and yet we are all unique but we also have that desire to belong and so it, it, you know there's so many different plays here how how do you foresee the way that we can involve or, or create an environment where you do have that inclusion and belonging but I also have the equity I think it for organizations, for me, it always starts with creating a culture with a vision and values. Um, what do we as an organization stand for? We be we believe as an organization this. Um, we believe in fairness, respect, equality, dignity, autonomy for all. We, we, we believe that um, we, we, we're intolerant of racism. We're intolerant of all isms and all phobias. We're intolerant. And we are going to be a positive ally to these communities. We're going to give a voice. We're going to amplify people. We're going to make sure that we have representation of different people on our board, in our senior leadership team, and throughout the organization. And we're committed to that as an organization. We want to have gender parity by such and such a date. We want to have our, eth our ethnicity mix at this level by such and such a date. And not just, and not just talk the talk. You know, you've got to walk this talk, you know, evidence it. Be authentic about it. Put programs in place. Communicate internally. Communicate externally. Track it. Measure it. Look at your impact. But I think that's that's what a company should do. They, and I'm not here to judge and say what their right answer is. But finding their own why. You know, we're here to talk about why. What their own why of DNI. Why does it matter to them as an organisation? Why does it matter to you as the CEO? To you as the CFO or the COO? Why does it matter to you to be more inclusive? Because until you can answer that question, it's going to be, well, it's not going to be sustainable. It's just going to be, oh, it's the right thing to do because it's it's great. But we all know just doing the right thing doesn't doesn't create change. There has to be a lever. There has to be something in the business that says we, we want to do this because a, it's the right thing to do, but b, it makes great business sense. We're going to represent our customers better. We're going to have access to different markets. We're going to be more responsive. Whatever that may be, 
by blending the right thing to do with tangible business outcomes, creates sustainability, creates drive and passion and purpose. And that's what we want to try and achieve here. Organizations truly align. Because what I don't want to do is you just focus on this compliance, you know, the Equality Act 2010, whatever that may, whatever your motives are. We don't want to get sued. We don't want to get it wrong. But that really is the bottom line. And if you look at the, the, the maturity model of organizations, people are focusing on that compliance element. They're still at stage one. What we want to do is get to stage four, stage five, where you really do understand the value of inclusion, the value of belonging, the alignment of culture, vision, and values, and the type of people that are going to drive your business forward and, and help, well, to thrive themselves, but also help your business thrive because they're fully engaged. And what about from an individual's perspective? What about from your perspective, Joe? What's your why behind this? I started, I suppose, just over four years ago, or nearly four years ago, where I, I, I undertook my own gender transition. And I, I went through a, a an intense four or five years before that with gender dysphoria, not knowing who I was, not feeling fulfilled in my life. You know, I was probably at this stage about 45 years old. Two children were at the point of leaving home, 16, 17, 18, something. Um, we'd been married 20-odd years at that time. And I think in that stage of the life, we get on this conveyor belt, we get on the rails at the age of 16, and our life is kind of mapped and pre-planned. And then at some point in our lives, we just say, well, we don't say, stop, let's get off, have a look around. I often think about, like, you know, you go to Gatwick Airport, and there's those travelators as you come out through the car park. And every so often, there's a break in the travelator, then you get on the next one to keep going forward. What I want to do is take this opportunity where there's a break in the travelator to get off and just let everybody else keep going, keep doing what they're doing, to stop and go, actually, where am I going? Do I still want to go there? Do I want all the luggage I've got with me? Do I need all this luggage? Or do I need to go somewhere different with different luggage or whatever it may be? And I, I think none of us, well, many of us have these thoughts, but many of us just keep getting on the escalator, keep going forward, keep going forward. On our journey, wishing we could get off, wishing we could pause. So. I was there with my career, with my job, what I did. To a certain extent, there were things in our relationship that were that were great. They're still great. And there were areas of our relationship we both agree we wanted to change. But you don't know how to change it from the inside. Sometimes you need to have a disruptor to spark you into change. And I think we had a bit of that around that time for various reasons. And that that led me to sort of be open about my trans identity with my wife, which in turn led to more conversations. It made, I suppose, once it was, once it became real, once it became talked about, it, it highlighted the, the dissatisfaction I had with my career. I ran a business and I wasn't a great business owner. I wasn't strategic. I wasn't thinking about the future. I had two business partners and it was a job. It was, an, it was a living. It wasn't. It wasn't a vehicle taking me anywhere I wanted to go. I, I probably frittered away fifteen years of my life just earning a living there. Didn't have any focus on it. So, I think that all came together. So, my business, uh, my relationship with my wife, my relationship, with my own life, the satisfaction of who I was inside, all came 
exploded <laughs> in, in, in my early 50s. And uh, at which point I sold my business to my business partners. I exited that four years ago this month uh, with signing a non-compete, never to do IT again. Well, whilst they were buying me out and embarked on a, on a journey of, uh, well, of changing my gender, how I lived every day, building a new career, whilst trying to maintain my family, who are obviously challenged by this uh, selfish decision I'd made. And I, I always call it selfish. And I, selfish could be seen as a negative word. I don't see it as a negative word because I, I didn't transition for anybody else. I did it for, my, for me. Therefore, by definition, it was selfish. So I I tried to go through this, this call it a process, this journey, whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, this phase of my life in the least selfish way. So I had to recognize it wasn't just about me, it was the impact I had on others. And I think all of this helped me understand about self, helped me understand about others, and how I just felt so much more compassion for what people around me were going through. And I realized it wasn't just about me. And that, that kind of really stuck home that I, I, I had to recognize that I was both the pain giver and the pain fixer. And in this case, I couldn't fix the pain. Yeah, maybe in a traditional relationship or with, with, with people, you, you've, you're able to coach or mentor someone and give people ideas. But they wanted, they wanted the situation to stay as it was, and I wanted the situation to change. And that's, that's, it's hard to resolve that. And I also went through a phase where I had this narrative where I'm still the same person. And I had to, I, I woke up and I realized one day that I had to drop that, that, that narrative. I had to drop it because everybody around me basically looked at me and said, don't kid yourself. You're not the same person. You look differently. You sound differently. You talk differently. You have different interests. You have different career. You have everything about you is different. The only thing that's the same is, is a bit about what you look like, but everything about you is not the same person. And I soon realized that I had to help other people watch me die. And I often use that, that scene in Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore around the potter's wheel. They were able to connect once they let go of everything else and just use the feelings, use that inner, 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 inner feeling. So I had, to, I had to reconnect with my wife in that way where I had to respect, I had to respect the fact that she thought her husband had died. And I had to help her with that grief. It was only when I realized that that was what she was going through, that I could then help her with grief. And it wasn't anger. Well, it was anger. But it was, it was the grief anger. Why me? And then there was some embarrassment anger. What are people going to say about me? So I had to identify all of these frustrations, all of these angers, all of these sadnesses that were going on in people's heads. And... I love my film allergies. You know, I don't know if you remember Green Mile, and you've got the big black guy, Bubba. He absorbed people's pain. And that's what I felt like sometimes. I was absorbing everyone's pain all the time because I felt so responsible for giving the pain. I wanted to take the pain away. And I found that really tiring, really exhausting. And there's nobody there that I had in my network or my circle that was absorbing my pain. And that became very difficult. It, it did lead me to a dark six months of my life, uh, about four years ago. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't function. I had I was internalizing 
my own limiting beliefs, my own, am I trans enough conversations? And I remember laying in bed, and I had this repetitive dream that I was on this round, you know, like a, a children's roundabout in the park. But you sit on this roundabout going round and round circles. I just couldn't get off it. Every time I tried to stop it, the next question would come in my head. The next question would come in. And I was trying to solve the unsolvable problem. And eventually, I, I think I woke up one day and just said, I am. I'm good enough. I'm trans enough. I'm, I may not be perfect, but I am me. And I'm capable. I'm a valid person. And once I stopped trying to justify it to myself, I just became instantly self-actuated, if you like. I became instantly empowered. I had self-belief. I liked myself. And that's not sycophantic or anything. It's just it's actually saying, actually, I'm I'm good enough for me. I'm good enough as a person. I don't have to I don't have to feel guilty about me anymore. But that took me four four months of soul searching. And I think once I once I became comfortable in who I was and had a self-belief, other people could then start believing in me. Because you know, I, I don't think you, you can ask other people to believe or like you unless you like yourself. And that became a very part, important part of my journey, liking myself, believing in myself. And I remember walking around uh, a national trust park one day, one of the stately homes with my wife. I remember us having a, a tearful moment saying, one of the, uh, you'll never um, be proud of me again, I said to my wife. Because you know, your kids are proud of dad, your kids are proud of mum when they grow up, your wife's proud of husband, you know, all these kind of things. And she had been proud of me, building a business and earning a living and providing all those sort of things. And I just felt she'd never be proud of me again. And that was really sad. And, and when someone loses their pride in you, how do you fix that? You, you can't. There's no magic wand. You have to rebuild that trust, rebuild that. And I remember thinking back about that a couple of weeks ago. And my wife is now proud of me again. And I th I'm not sure my kids are but yet, but they're not ashamed of me, which is which is, is certainly uh, a good place to be. They'll, they'll happily... Well, back when you could sit in a pub, they're happy to sit in a pub with me. They're happy to talk about, talk to me and be seen with me. So they're not ashamed of me or anything like that. Um, but I don't think they'd be proud of me, even if they haven't said it, because I'm proud of them. Wow. Thank you, Joe, for sharing. It, is, it, it clearly has been a painful journey, but one of self-love eventually. And um, what I'm hearing is that sort of understanding of the self-worth, the self-esteem, the sort of the, the self-belief is all coming through. But it, it wasn't an easy point. And I know that that's a journey that many people in life struggle with is, is that self-love and understanding that first to really show love and, sh and receive love, you have to love yourself first. Yeah, I, I struck with imposter syndrome very early on. Um, firstly. Was I trans enough? You know, was I was I kidding myself? Did I need to do this? Then am I woman enough? Um, I remember being at this event probably three years ago, and I was sitting with a group of other women in a circle, and we're talking about something. It was a, like a breakout session in an event, and I remember using the word "we," the collective noun for "we" as women. And I remember saying it, and I was looking around my shoulder thinking, is anyone going to call me out and say, hang on a minute, you're not we women, you're we're women, you're not, sort of thing. And I remember sitting there feeling kind of, whew, got away with that, no one said anything. Uh, and it was the first time I remember using it naturally without thinking about it and being more comfortable of it. And it, 
and from that moment on, I think I became more confident in my own sense of self, how I was accepted by people around me. And, and my view of me didn't align always with other people's view of me. There was a lot more positivity out there than I, I gave people credit for. Uh, and that was a, so the imposter syndrome was real. And the other, the other way I describe it is my benchmark was me. I couldn't escape my shadow. I was always trying to outrun myself. So when I thought, when I looked and said, oh, how am I doing uh, in terms of building my new career? My only my only person I was working with was, was myself. So I, I always felt like I was never more than a millimeter away from my shadow, despite how far I'd come. Because I was always looking over my shoulder and I was still there. And it wasn't until I, I realized that I was playing, as I call it, Mario Kart in ghost mode, where you're trying to beat your fastest lap all the time. And it's really impossible. Once you get your best lap, it's really hard to escape yourself. Once I realized that was going on, I then learned how I could benchmark myself further back in time, how I could read testimonials that people were giving me, um, how I would say to people, when people said to me, wow, this or whatever, I'd, say, I'd learn to say, thank you. I really appreciate that. Really appreciate it and believe it. But until that point, I got—I was literally, oh, don't be silly, you know, don't be silly. You know, I'm just winging it. I'm just making it up as I go along. You know, don't, 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 no, no, don't. And it was only when I look back that I, I realised I've probably compressed ten years of, of of an average person's career growth into like six months because I was so focused, so intense on this, having so many conversations, get involved, get involved with so many different things. I didn't have any dead time in my life. It was all focusing on building this career. So I think I probably was hyper-accelerating my, my, my knowledge, my credibility and what I was doing. And I, that's what I started to believe. I started to understand it. And then people I respected started telling me that, that, that I was, that they respected me. It's like, hang on a minute. How's that happened? Yeah, the... Uh, that's when it started becoming kind of scary that I started believing myself when people I really, really respected started really, really respecting me. And that, that's when, if you like, the magic happened, where I started really to believe that, um, yeah, because the people I trusted um, told me what I was scared to believe, and then I started believing it. But that, that took a long, that took a couple of years to get to that point where, yeah, I'm not saying I'm arrogant or egotistical now, uh, I'm always, I always carry that imposter syndrome with me and it keeps driving me, but it, at least it allows me to believe and not feel um, I'm not worthy anymore. And in your words, that selfish decision to jump off the travelator and dump the luggage and, and then understand where the destination is, where is that destination for you now, Joe? Well, this is the beauty. I often say I'm a business coach's worst nightmare because a business coach wants you to have a a plan they want you to have this profit goal this target this growth ambition this market ambition but i really love not having a plan and i do i, I do have a plan the, the plan is to, is to create a sustainable living into my retirement that i can keep keep doing around inclusion and belonging but what that entails the beauty is i could be op opportunistic i'm a, a very much a portfolio yeah, that sounds interesting. Let's let's try that. Let's try that. Let's try that. Keep saying yes and figure it out. You know, the Richard Branson thing. I'm learning to fly the plane without a manual. You know, I just <laughs> the, the pilots die. Good Joe, I'll have a go if no one else has it. Let's give it see what happens. So I I, I used to describe this as um no sat nav and no GPS and no map. 
I just go into the forest and I, and I keep wandering around the past, going, oh, left, right. Okay, let's try left. Oh, that didn't like left. Let's go back, go right. Or, But not being afraid to get to a dead end and go, no, don't like this. Let's, let's reverse back out and try a different direction. So I'm enjoying not being on a travelator. I'm enjoying just wandering around the terminal with my luggage, working out. Maybe I've got a ticket to everywhere and I'll just work out where I want to go next, just rather than a ticket to a particular destination. Yeah. And he used a phrase which I, I picked up on, which was solve the unsolvable. Do you still believe that it was unsolvable? I think it was the wrong question. That, that's what I believe. I was trying to solve a question that wasn't important or wasn't necessary. Or, or So I, can't, I, still, I still probably can't answer those questions, but I don't need to answer those questions. They're not questions I need. I, am I trans enough? Yeah. <laughs> because who says? I do. I've, I, so you, I think you just rewrite the rule book. Again, another, another thing I love is, I don't know if you remember in Star Trek, I'm a, I'm a great a great TV movie, I use a, metaphors and analogies. James T. Kirk, uh, Kubiashu Maru test or whatever, whatever you pronounce it, how he graduated from the academy. He, he allegedly, he cheated uh, because he solved the unsolvable problem where everyone dies or where everyone dies. And he re, he pro, reprogrammed the simulator so that he could win. So maybe that's what I do. I don't crash in that particular way. I don't say this is not winnable. I go well. How can I change the rules? How can I how can I work around it? How can I avoid keep crashing into the wall? How can I go above, below, round, around that wall, and and change the question? Change the question. Come up with an answer. Solve the answer I can solve. So I think that's probably the approach I take now is it's believing. Another mantra I have is if someone could do it, anyone could do it, I can do it. So I may not be able to be an astronaut because I'm too old, but had I wanted to be an astronaut, I could have been. Is there anything I want to do? And I, and I, and I, well, anything I really want to do and I can do, I, I, I will do if I wanted to. So if it interests me, I'll, I'll have a go at it. So I truly believe that yeah, if someone can, anyone can, I can. And are you proud of yourself now, Joe? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I, I, I am. Yeah, I am. I am definitely proud of myself. Not, I, I look back at where I've come from the last four years. I had a pretty good life. Uh, I, yeah, from my birth to 48, 49 years of age. And I I did a complete reboot. I rebooted my gender. I rebooted a lot of my relationship. My, my relationship with my wife is completely different, but it's still a loving, caring, fulfilling relationship with different rules. I financially rebooted. I We ended up selling our, our beautiful home. And literally start financially starting again for various reasons. You know, we had to financially reboot everything. And I started a new career. So that's a complete reboot of career, not in any sector I had before. So everything I had today, I've kind of built in the last four years. And the relationship I have with my wife, we rebuilt in the last four years. So everything, and maybe apart from the dining table I'm sat at now, which is our old dining table, most things I look around are new in the last four years. And so I am proud of that achievement of what I have now really is Joanne's. The legacy I, I have inherited from the, the previous uh, role model I had inside me 
is yes, I can talk, I can speak, I've got my brain, I've got my education, I've got my lived experience. So I really value the prep that that old life gave me. What I've done is I've, 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 I've taken that lump of clay and created something new with it. And what's the core learning for you throughout this whole process? Listening to people, being self-aware, knowing who you are, and I think pay it forward. I always, I always think paying it forward as being a core element of me. And I don't mean inauthentic paying it forward where you think, oh, I'm just going to invest, I'm going to invest, I'm going to do this. I'm going to... And you're almost thinking, what am I going to get back for this? I, I'm talking about true altruistic paying it forward. And the way I describe that is to having a boomerang and standing in the middle of a park and throwing this boomerang as hard as you can into the sun and never expecting that boomerang to ever come back or see it again. And then weeks, months, years later, you just one day you just put your arm up and catch the boomerang. You've no idea which one it was, where it came from, or where it's been. You just look at it and go, wow, thank you. And it's amazing how many boomerangs I've been catching that I never expected to see again. I never, I never knew where they were going to come from, who they were from. But on a regular basis, I see boomerangs. And that makes me feel kind of proud of the people I know and the investment they've made in me and I've made in them over the years. And this, this supply of boomerangs I've got in a box next to me that I keep throwing. But no, I, I think that has been, uh, it, to me, the biggest source of, of, of pride I have is, is truly using that pay it forward model, collaborating, not looking for a return. Um, and the return has been personal brand. But the, the return has been having a, a great network of friends who I trust and they trust me. And that's the return on investment. And it's it was never done as a, an investment thing. But now I do see it as an investment. And I, I continue to throw the boomerangs. And uh, that's I think that's one of the key successes I've had is to put my faith in the world. Well, it's it's been a truly fantastic conversation and i know that people will want to reach out and sort of speak with you about what you've shared today how would they do that i would suggest the best way is find me on linkedin so joe lockwood so linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash joe lockwood that's you can find me there or if you google my name uh, i i appear quite 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 a few times on the first few pages of google um or go to my website see change happen which is sw change happen.co.uk and all the contact details are there. But if you connect with me on LinkedIn, drop me a message. Let's have a let's have a Zoom coffee. Sounds fantastic. Well, I'll make sure all of those links go into the show notes so people can easily access them. Thank you. Once again, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your why on the on the Focus on Why podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing some of the journey uh, that you've shared today. So thank you, Joe. Do you have any final words for the audience? I think I acknowledge that I have a privilege. The privilege I have is my ability for resilience. And I appreciate that is a, a privilege not everyone has. So think about your own why. Think about what you can do and talk to people, listen to people, and start to build a little network of, of friends or supporters. And it's much easier to go into the world when you're not alone. So just whoever it may be, just find somebody, start slowly build it up but believe in yourself 
Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via canonly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.